0: How are you doing there, Mark? You're looking good now.
1: As as
2: usual, (laughs) I hope.
3: Okay, I've got to ask you a quick question. Are you
0: seeing... uh, Mark, are you seeing uh, anything at all?
4: Not now. I was seeing someone dressed in orange or red. Anything now? No, my guess is. No.
0: Yes. There we go okay so now we're back um for some crazy reason it's not uh <laughs> it's not sending our uh bga sources
5: we're gonna we're gonna start this one way
0: or another. well we can go go ahead
5: well, where, is jonathan you know what's it, going on or he'll have to try
0: and reconnect with him
6: I he's in, Belgium. in Belgium. Yeah. Do you want to call him?
7: Do you have his number? No. I can't call him.
4: Sounds like a complex mix of technology.
0: Oh, well, we're having all kinds of fun problems here. Are you frozen again? Yeah, you frozen again. Belgium is causing it to freeze. Mark? Yeah. Sorry, man. If you
3: want so, to um. Andy,
4: you can, you can call into us. Calling to you?
1: Phone into us. All right. Um, what's IT? I think I have it written down, actually. What?
7: Is
0: it 142.66.2.222? That's right. All right. All right. So I'm going to disconnect. Okay. He's not, he's... Jonathan's not even being able
4: to stay connected.
5: Can you hear me, Jonathan? Yeah. Great. Okay, we cut off uh, Regina. Okay. Regina, and, and just we couldn't hold you both for some reason. So uh, Mark will come in by phone, and I'm just going to uh, start up. So it's uh, November the 15th, and uh, the last class is November the 29th. So uh, because we started the first day of class, as you recall, uh, the, anyway, we, we, ha, we don't do the final week, like others, other classes will do the final week. 29th is the last class, but so we have two more classes. And I'm proposing that uh, we do a home. And here's the deal on the take-home. I know at least one person is wanting to get back to China for the holiday. And uh, possibly, um, uh, many, you know, many of you want to go home or be with your families over Christmas. So I'm going to next week give the take-home exam, give out the questionnaire. What I usually do is one question, which, or maybe a hypothetical situation, which uh, gives you an opportunity to present some kind of overview and your reflections on all the things we, we've talked about. And uh, so the rules are that it has to, you have to have at least a minimum. The date that it has to, has to be due is four days into the exam cycle, which is December the 15th. And that's pretty bad, eh? a class that ends on November the 29th. So, but, but there's nothing to say you can't hand in your take home early. So I'll accept your take home early. My inclination is to say I, I'll do an extension of the essays until December the 4th. But if you want to get away early, you can, you can do everything uh, in, a, in an accelerated fashion. So you will have technically until December the 15th will be the deadline for the take-home. My guess is that I won't be getting any papers by December the 15th, and so I might get a few papers on November the 29th, uh, and so technically the essays are due the 29th, I believe, but now I'll do an extension. Um, and uh, Anyway, that, that's the picture there, okay? Uh, my office now is C872. I suggest that uh, you deliver the paper to Bev Garnett, who is the Administrator of Women's Studies, Religious Studies, liberal education, globalization studies, and uh, that way she can uh, stamp it, and, and uh, you can put it under my door, you can put it in my box, but of course it, it, just, it just is a, a lot nicer to to hand it to a person who, who can create some kind of record that you actually handed the paper in. Um, so uh, 872 is C eight seven two is my office. Okay, yeah, James. I'm not going to give a length. I'm looking at it as a seven as something that you would have done. I would if, if I had my druthers. I would have just said the, the last week. But there is this regulation in the in the calendar, so I have to give you to the to the fifteenth. Uh, but I I, I think. I don't feel that giving you a a poundage, you know, I want six pounds, I want eight pounds, I want two pounds, uh, you know, a reasonable answer with my understanding that you're doing a lot of courses all the way through this, I understand this is an elective for everybody. eh? This is not a major for anybody, and so you all have your majors, and I think I've tried to be realistic, you know, it's not not a gimme, you know, you've got to do real work, but, um, um, uh, anyway, so, so, uh, you know, I want you to address it in an expedient way, in a, in a thoughtful way, but with the cognizance that, uh, you know, you have lives, Christmas. So do the best you can under the conditions. That's
4: all I can ask. So,
5: that being said, uh, today we put up on the site uh the last week's class and i was looking forward to uh showing mark that uh we've uh got this uh, available i think last week's class is a very uh powerful document you know there were a lot of voices addressing many significant issues and uh so uh here it is and uh, and there's a new uh there's a new addition as well professor rongcourt who did the main presentation uh, in the january offering it is there's a new clip up here this is professor rongcourt here so uh So that's what's going on on the site. Uh, Tonight, the class is called Water, Climate, Biodiversity, and uh, the Regeneration of Life on Planet Earth. Sort of a long-involved title, but uh, Water, Climate, and Biodiversity and the Regeneration of Life on the planet. Uh, watch tonight's lecture at 6 six o'clock, so we are streaming, so welcome if you're out there uh, observing the stream, and as I say here, uh, join environmental scientist, Professor Jim Byrne, uh, GS student, Jennifer Shabinski, and GS associate, Jonathan Veal, with a Brussels to Lethbridge link. So I'm very pleased to... Uh, introduce tonight's event, uh, Jennifer Chib- uh came to me or proposed to me in an email that she had a presentation she would like to do on, uh, at the time, it was on uh, how global warming is affecting plants and the regeneration of seeds. And this is not a topic I've heard discussed broadly, uh, and Jennifer, I think, was uh, impressed and taken aback at a presentation she'd heard at a, at a conference. So Jennifer took the initiative and uh, out of that I thought, well, let's try to do a class on ecology. Uh, let's try to bring in some scientific uh, know-how and of course Jennifer has that. Uh, Jonathan Beal did his applied studies on water commodification. And uh, I don't know if Jonathan, is he, is he have we left? He's gone and he'll be back. So anyway, we've we've obviously had a difficulty keeping the Regina connection with the Belgian connection. For some reason, the two uh, seem to uh, um, clash with each other. So if Jonathan is out there, um, and he was out there a few minutes ago, he's in the same location as he was last week. And uh, and, uh, the, the largest part of the presentation tonight will... Uh, be coming from Professor Byrne, Jim Byrne, my good friend, Dr. Jim Byrne, who, uh, is an environmental scientist in geography department at the University of Lethbridge. He, uh, ha- his major focus is on water, watersheds. He's a major uh, show business personality as well and, uh, and, uh, uh Brought his science, and not to med- not to mention his uh, communication skill, his uh, suave and debonair demeanor, to uh, to a, a, a pr- production with. Uh, if I can go to the document camera uh, with uh, David Schindler. So, Professor Byrne, if I can go to the document camera, please, Professor Byrne. Oh, I, I can't see it on the plasma. Professor Byrne works closely with uh, David Schindler. David Schindler, I think there is little doubt. David Schindler is the most internationally world-renowned scholar in Alberta. His focus is water, and he is uh, constantly trying to draw attention to the very serious crisis that we're facing. Uh, The the glaciers are shrinking uh, very quickly in this part of the world. That's where we get our water from, uh, there are very severe implications from global warming for this part of the world and for the, uh, the ecology of water. So uh, Jim Byrne uh, has published 30 refereed uh, articles, that is to say peer-reviewed refereed articles in journals. He has um, presented over a hundred conference papers. And he's going to uh, walk us through some of the clips from Water Under Fire, uh, which will um, give us a full audio-visual presentation of of these issues. And beyond that, we have the actual, um, one of the major contributors to this series right here, so he can talk us through it and show us clips and and set it up. And, And we do have a plan for a bit of a... Uh, group session. We do want some uh, interactivity. I've suggested that, uh, Jonathan, can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Jonathan? Yes, I can. Yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm setting it up. I'm introducing uh, the event. I'm hoping that uh, you can come in. Of course, you've done a lot of work on the commodification of water, the transformation of water into a commodity to be bought and sold. The privatization of water. So I'm hoping that uh, uh, Professor Byrne and uh, Jonathan Veal uh, can develop some uh, exchanges uh, and uh, Jonathan can bring out his reflections in, in that context. So without further ado then, I present uh, Jennifer Shabilsky. <laughs>
8: Shabilsky?
9: Shabilsky. Shabilsky. All
10: right. Yeah.
9: Okay. So I'm on um podium.
5: And you'll Hi. notice tonight that uh Hal is about to leave and he's passing off uh responsibilities to uh the rising uh, Illuminati of the C R D C and uh so uh here we go.
9: Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Jennifer Shevilsky. I'm a fourth year here at University of Lethbridge in the chemistry department. Uh, I do work mostly on uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, or MRI. Uh, So I'm going to do a brief description of global warming and how it affects plants and other things in their environment. And then I'm going to lead that on into a talk on alternate fuel sources. So my talk is entitled, Cheese Whiz for Everyone, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> no one else seems to. But you have to explain
5: it.
9: <laughs> oh, I'll get yeah. it. I'll get it. Okay. Okay. So here's my overview. I'm going to go briefly into greenhouse gases and then spend uh, a bit of time on methanol, hydrogen, and ethanol economy. And then uh, hopefully have a question period. Or I pray that one of you will ask a question. <laughs> so... During this talk, I'd like you to uh, think about a couple of things. Uh, Do you think global warming affects you? Because most of us don't. (laughs) We think it's someone far away who's going to be affected by this global warming thing. Uh, Did you know that carbon dioxide levels have increased from 270 to 370 parts per million, which is huge, since the industrial era, and that's when we started burning coal. Big differences there. How can we become less dependent on fossil fuels? And whose responsibility is it to fix this problem? Is it us? Is it somebody else? Should we even think about it? So I'm sure you're wondering. Global warming, not so bad, right? Increased average temperature, that sounds nice. Have longer growing seasons, sounds pretty good. Rising oceans, more beaches. Come on, sounds good. But of course it's not. It's <laughs> uh, been studied by Dr. Jacob Schaefer and his group at the University of Washington, where they have found that uh, a stunting in soybean plants, when you increase carbon dioxide along with decreased water accessibility, which is the uh, type of situation we would be looking at with these increased uh, heats and carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, what they found was that glycine in photorespiration, which is how plants make sugar or food, is removed from the system, which means that they can't produce as much sugar as they would, and therefore they can't produce seeds. Uh, this glycine is put into proteins called uh, glycine-rich proteins, or GRPs. And uh, this is used for structure in plants. So they'll kind of grow, but they go into a sort of hibernation state because they don't have as much food as they normally would. Uh, so the effect we have here is if there are no plants, okay, if you think about that, if there were no more grain, no more corn being grown, if it, none of that, because we wouldn't be seeing as much as we do now, prices would, of course, jump. Because it would be a situation like if you guys remember the uh, Mad Cow story uh, about two years ago now, is it? Uh-huh. Couldn't sell the meat, but everyone still wanted it. So everyone paid more at the grocery store. But the farmer's still getting screwed. <laughs> there would be less feed for our livestock. So we'd see a decrease in cattle, in beef, and in chicken products. So we'd have more pressure on our fisheries, which are already suffering. And then we'd have an increased emphasis on artificial foods, like my favorite, Cheese Whiz, which was not good enough. To be fuel for your car, it got made into food. (laughs) Very good. Very delicious.
3: You want to explain that further? Oh, uh,
9: the Cheese Whiz? Mm -hmm. Um, They take petroleum byproducts and they refine it into a type of oil that is edible and then they flavor it and they call it Cheese Whiz. So, I don't know how many of you eat Cheese Whiz, but I hope you don't anymore. (laughs) It's not good for you. So from here, I'd like to go into alternate fuel sources, which is, you know, my personal favorite. So what we want to see in the future is a move away from oil and gas, hazardous, not good for the environment, and it's depleting. So we have a couple of choices. We have ethanol, which we can make from corn, and we're doing that right now. We have the hydrogen economy, hydrogen fuel cells buses that run on explosive gas. We have the methanol economy, which is up and kind of running right now. We have some people on campus who are working on that. And, of course, nuclear power, which nobody here likes, I take it, from our previous discussion. (laughs) So ethanol. Uh, Let me see if I can find my notes on ethanol. Uh, So we've been making ethanol from corn. So there's some some pros to that. Corn is available, easy to grow. It's a very clean fuel, and we don't get all this nitrogen byproducts out of it. And there's no net increase in carbon dioxide levels because the plants use existing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to generate it. So we wouldn't be increasing the concentrations. We would be keeping them fairly stable. And there's some cons, of course, to producing a fuel out of food, which is that there's less food. (laughs) If we're using all of this corn, we're not getting feed corn, because that's the level that's being used. Corn that would go to feeding cattle is being diverted into ethanol production, or also production of biodegradable plastics. And it's a very labor and energy intensive operation. If you can imagine how much energy it takes to grow corn, you have to have tractors, it's run off of the fuel if you have people in there. You need to pay for fertilizers, for pesticides. It's not an efficient way to look at energy at all. I think the numbers are a 30% gain of energy out of this, which is nothing. Of course, then we have hydrogen fuel cells. And we all remember that zeppelins used to run on, well, used to float from H2 gas, which is explosive. This is a basic uh, alkaline fuel cell, which is hydrogen and oxygen, and it makes water. That sounds like a good plan. It's clean, which is really its only pro, <laughs> because the uh, hydrogen is very explosive. You have to keep it in fairly heavy containers because it has to be blast-proof, flame-proof not really cost effective, being that you have to pump electricity through water to get hydrogen, or worse, burn fossil fuels and collect the hydrogen off of it, which is what we're trying to avoid. Now, the electrolysis one is, I don't know, what's, what's being used right now to, for gaining H2. But so the idea that they're, they're thinking of using, because you're producing water during this reaction. So what they want to do is, as you produce this water, Electrolyze it and gain the uh, hydrogen and oxygen out of it again, which would be a good idea, except for the fact that um, laws of thermodynamics indicate that you can never ever get 100% efficiency. So we're going to be losing energy constantly. So, and that you also have to power the electrical current. So you're going to be, the energy you're producing from this has to be going back into it to create more. And it's just a, a cycle of loss of energy. So my favorite, methanol. We have this great book by the Nobel laureate George Ola and his partners, Gilbert uh, and Sarah Prakash. I hope I said his name right. Where they discuss methanol as uh, an excellent source to begin all sorts of things from fuel to hydrocarbon production. And on campus we have Dr. Paul Hayes. He's a new acquisition. We just got him, uh, this is July. And, uh, he, wor- he works on, uh, metal catalyzed production from carbon dioxide and methane. And we could also use this to produce other sorts of hydrocarbons like, uh, polypropylene and other things like that that are used in business. Now so I'm gonna dazzle you with some chemical equations that you won't understand. <laughs> so this one uh, involves uh, sulfuric acid and uh, mercury as a catalyst. And mercury is not all that fun to play with, quite poisonous. And then we have this one, which I think is a slightly better way to go, where you take uh, methane gas, which I'm sure everyone's heard about. Hmm? comes from cows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you break that down into hydrogen gas and graphite, which is just plain old carbon. And then you would uh, use that to synthesize, you would use carbon dioxide and the hydrogen to synthesize your methanol. Okay. It would be a nice, clean way to do it. You can get rid of graphite pretty easily, <laughs> it's used for all sorts of things in the lab. And then Nuclear power.
5: So wh- where does methanol come from?
9: Methanol? Oh, mm-hmm. um, well, where does it come from?
8: What, what
2: is it? What?
9: what is it? Okay, um, alcohol that you would drink is ethanol, and that just has one additional CH2 in there. Um, where it says CH3OH for, for methanol. Um, it has one extra little hydrocarbon in there, and that's ethanol, and you can drink that. Methanol causes blindness and death in large quantities. Don't drink it. But uh, it's relatively easy to use, and it's volatile, but not you know, horrendously so. It's not like uh, nail polish remover that just disappears on you. Uh, it's, uh, we use it quite a bit as a solvent in labs, but it's a good starting point for making all sorts of other things. Very, very clean, which is the point. If we can make it out of carbon dioxide, it burns to carbon dioxide. And so we would have a net of zero if we were to use these reactions. And if we were to use the methanol to create hydrocarbons, which are long chains of uh, carbon and hydrogen, uh, then we would have a net decrease in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And they are working on ways to get it out of the atmosphere. It's easier to collect it as it's being made. But uh, of course, then you would have to install all sorts of collectors on the ends of cars, and no one's willing to pay for that. Um it would be the easiest way to do it, but it would require a lot of infrastructure. That's the only problem with this um, methanol economy. So nuclear you power. Everyone's afraid of it. Everyone thinks Chernobyl right away. But we do need to realize that it has been 20 years since Chernobyl. And I hope we have come a little farther than that in 20 years. Uh, Everything is a lot safer now. We still have to deal with waste, which is one of its cons. Waste is very difficult to get rid of when it's nuclear. If we could use it for for other things, that would be great. But uh, it's very difficult to do research on radioactive materials because it's hard to get funding for that kind of thing. <laughs> but they know. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, but nuclear power is very clean, other than the waste that is very difficult to get rid of. I mean, we don't have carbon dioxide, we don't have these base substances that we just have no, that we can't deal with in the quantities that we're dealing with now. And let's see, that's basically my talk. I want to try and impress on you that you should be informed about all of these things that we're looking at. Look it up. Don't just say, oh my gosh, nuclear, oh no, and go running. Look it up. Find out about it. Because it's not as bad as you think. Uh, we really need to get a new energy source. Everyone says, I don't want to give up my car. But what if we had? What if a new thing that we came out with was better than cars? What if it was way more convenient than cars? But we won't know unless we try. We need to change energy consumption practices. I want to take a brief moment here. How many people here drove here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so like nine. Ten. Oh, you, you drove. <laughs> ten people. Okay. How many of you carpooled? One. Not good numbers. <laughs> no, imaginary friends do not count. <laughs> How many of the people who drove live on the west side? See how many people could have carpooled? Westside's like nothing. Everyone could get a ride with each other. <laughs> okay, we also need to forget about blaming the past. These people, oh, I didn't, didn't burn all this stuff. It's not my fault. So it's not your fault. Suck it up. <laughs> deal with it. Change it. Change it not for you, but for the people who will come after you. Because they'll look at you and they say, look at what they did. They changed it so we don't have to deal with it. and then briefly my references Uh, of course Jacob Schaefer and the fantastic book Methanol economy I highly recommend everyone read it it's written in layman's terms you should all understand it (laughs) so question time pop up all the questions I have to think about so this is where I ask you guys to push the little button and join in
4: do you think global warming affects you? I sure do. I went to, uh, uh, there's a speaker at the same class there. His name was Patrick Morey, uh, one of the co-founders of the Greenpeace, and he, uh, his talk was not a lot unlike yours, and it brought up a lot of new issues for me. He was a real advocate of um, nuclear energy as well, I and mean, it's a really only viable way to reduce our, our reliance on uh, gas. and um, uh, those type of fuels.
6: Mm-hmm. He
4: said that the the waste that we get from a nuclear, I don't know if you know a lot about it, but the waste that we get from a nuclear uh, uh, factory, there's still 95% of energy is left inside that waste. Yeah, so they,
6: it's yeah, they can
4: reuse it. And so once they do that um, it's way less hazardous. I think like the half-life they said was something like 300 years after they break it down. So they can keep doing that and it's way more manageable. So that was something that I didn't know. But the issue that I I wish I would have asked him last night, I don't know if you have any thoughts about it, is uh, they're still really, really dangerous. And I know that they've made, it's not like Chernobyl anymore, and Mm -hmm. um, nuclear power plants are way safer, but they're still a liability. Because 20 years after Chernobyl, that that is still a waste plan there. Only 50 people died during that explosion, but people's lives, thousands upon thousands of people have been affected. So having nuclear power plants in Alberta and North America, Mm -hmm. you you know, the seven nuclear nations. Do they not become a liability for instability in the future? I mean, I know they can make them foolproof for the people that work in them, but if I was, I want to avoid using terrorists, or if I was somebody that had, you know, wanted to use a nuclear factory adversely, could I not go in there with a bomb and, you know, destroy the factory Then we could have a, you know, a giant uh, nuclear halt in one particular area? And then that, that that land is no longer useful at all once that happens, right? The area in Chernobyl will never... I mean, it's, it's waste time for eternity, sounds okay. not?
9: Not eternity, It's long it? enough for us to think of it that way.
4: Yeah. <laughs> can they, like, have they thought about that? Can, can nuclear power plants be, you know?
9: Well, nothing is perfectly safe, right? I mean, oil fields burn. Everything burns. So, I mean, it's just things you have to think about, but we can't live, we can't, make our choice on what we use as an energy source because a terrorist might come and destroy it. That's definitely not the way to be thinking because then they win. Uh, What we need to do is is think about how we can make the changes that would make these things safer. So if we were to look at the, the problem is that people think that they're so dangerous that that you're not supposed to work on it, right? You're not supposed to look at these things. So if you can't work on it, How can you make it better is kind of how we're looking at it. they're getting a lot safer and they're getting a lot more. We're trying to make them uh, more foolproof. But, I mean, you can't make anything perfect. The best we can do is uh, try and hope that nobody will come in and blow it up on us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I just think that they just seem so dangerous. I didn't know that it's a whole uh, methanol thing. I'm not really familiar with that at all, but...
6: Yeah, it's very new.
4: It is very new, right? Yeah, it?
6: the
10: book's
9: from 05.
4: Uh, I'd be willing to put a little box in the back of my tailpipe if it meant that <laughs> the co carbon wasn't going in the And then we'd anymore. have
9: to, of course, uh, the box would have to, have to have a recycling plant where you'd have to come and drop the box of carbon dioxide off at and have a refinery in that. So that's the infrastructure we would need. And would governments and, would you be willing for taxes to increase for that to be built?
4: Well, not right now, but it seems safer to me than nuclear energy. Yeah. If it's, it's, it's just as viable if it could produce as much energy, I just
9: don't it, it doesn't produce the same amount of energy as gas does. Do you know the number on Um I think it's like 70% of what we would get out of gas, so you would need more of it, but it's cleaner.
5: Are you hearing this, Jonathan?
2: are you hearing all this yeah
5: yeah i uh i'm having trouble seeing things in fact i don't even see much but you can hear it. Here. yeah mm-hmm. Is
3: raphael were you gonna yeah i'm just gonna
11: say um are you willing to risk um well with with chernobyl it's basically inhabitable The area. So if you decide to go ahead with nuclear energy, are you willing to risk um, having no, like, I guess, any problem?
9: Unviable land now or unviable land later? So really, you have to to weigh it out. I mean, the chances of, I mean, how many nuclear power plants are going right now? And there's only being.
11: It's not a lot because of the issue of the past. And at the same time, with where we live, with the wind, it'll carry as well with the new, the radiation to other parts. So, I mean, it, it is a good idea, but I just think that the risk yeah. of...
9: I mean, I'd like to stress methanol much more than nuclear. And in Lethbridge, I don't know why there aren't fields of uh, wind turbines out there. Yeah,
5: I was just going to say uh, wind and sun... And sun,
4: sun
9: is, is. huge. Sun, yeah. sun, sun, is huge. Sun is difficult. Sun is, sun is variable.
4: Yeah. yeah.
9: But if <laughs> if
4: you
5: if you have uh, batteries, um, you know, new new generations of batteries. Peter Gomberg, he used to uh, look at the University of Lethbridge logo. It's Fiat Looks. and so Fiat Looks is "Let there be light." And he had a picture that the University of Lethbridge, if we took it off the grid and we generated our power through sun power, through wind power, uh, and studied it, uh, you know, the, the institution would, I think, very quickly become world famous. Uh, you know, to actually uh, make a, a leap and, and say, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a prototype, an institution where we actually... Uh, try, try, out things and, and, and study, study things. Nuclear, um, I, I took, got quite involved in, a, uh, in Ontario when they built Darlington. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, this concept of the waste,
3: uh, well, waste you know, it's reusable. Well, well, it's, it's
5: just handing to future generations,
3: uh, a very, very
5: tricky, tricky thing. Uh, the oh, concept yeah. that, uh, you know, if if you're trying to do major destruction for whatever reason, you've got your political agenda or whatever. I mean, a nuclear power plant is like a sitting duck target. Like you say, well, if we give in to, uh, but then you know, well, how much security do we need? How much you know, watching of each other do can can we take? Uh, the low level radioactivity is it's really not known. What the long-term health effects are. Uh, Rosalie Bertel, Sister Rosalie Bertel, she was a, you know, she, she wrote a book, I think it's called No Immediate Danger with a question mark. And, and, uh, she describes, you know, trying to get funding to study the effects of low-level radioactivity. And she had lots of evidence that indicated that just a little bit of radioactivity getting out actually over the long term has Know, very significant health effects in terms I mean, of cancer. It
9: would be uh, very difficult to prove that that's where the radiation was coming from. I mean, like, we emit radiation well, in a really high amount. And then, then, of
5: course, you went on to describe the politics of, you know, trying to get funding for the study. And then you have to get baselines. You know, you have to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the health circumstances to start with? And then, you know, over time, how, how is this affected? So these are costly studies. And she just talked about the difficulty getting studies because, you know, the evidence might not be what those who fund things like that want. So, I mean, on all, in many of these questions, there's issues of politics about, you know, what gets funded. Funding
9: is all politics. And what
5: kind of research gets, gets done. Another, just to, to put it out, and I, I take your point, I, I did open the possibility, I mean, the debate about how to do the tar sand. And how to create all that energy to get the energy out. I haven't dismissed, I would have in the past, that nuclear would be, might be better than what, what, what is, uh, currently in place. But one of the things that really did strike me about nuclear, the people who were affected at Chernobyl, for instance, or within a thousand miles, or, you know, the SAMI, the, the, the radioactive fall that fell on their, uh, license where the reindeer herd fell, fed, and so they eat the reindeer and, <clears throat> and became contaminated. But <clears throat> the uh, effects of radioactive contamination are permanent. In other words, they get in the DNA structure and then all the progeny for all time are affected. Uh, a chemical, you know, say we get chemically poisoned uh, well, there, it's conceivable that the future generations will start, start anew. But, but nuclear uh, gets in the gene pool, and, and, it, and it's a permanent distortion of the, of the gene pool. And there also is a history of nuclear that, I mean, the, the, the major industry of, of nuclear industry in the past was making nuclear weapons. And so the power plants were in the early days largely a public relations
9: element. Nuclear didn't start out weapons. Nuclear started out with Canadian scientists looking for a new energy source, and it got turned into a weapon by uh, Americans. Yes.
5: (laughs) But, you know, there's there's not to dismiss it out of hand either.
1: Kit, I have a couple questions. Um, I don't know if you. This, but um, in terms of ethanol, mm-hmm. uh, with our growing global population, like how does that address, um, like if we need crops to grow fuel, what happens to our crops for food? Like that's water.
9: why it's one of my cons. And, uh,
1: <laughs> and another thing, like with methanol, if we're using if we if we're using it as a major source,
9: mm-hmm.
1: we might have to produce methane, right? but methane is 23 times more potent than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So
6: well,
1: where would that put that? Like, yeah, it's, it's not very concentrated right now, but it could be if we, if we went that,
6: that
9: route. So methane, the production would be very contained. It's like we wouldn't be putting it into the atmosphere. It's not a byproduct. It's, it's a reactant. So I mean, it would just be like uh, ammonia. Ammonia is not good for you at all, but we, uh Alberta is one of the largest producers of ammonia in the world. And it's like just a few miles out of town if anybody knows about it. Yeah. And it's huge and, and nobody notices that there's all this ammonia laying around. So it would be the same with methane.
4: I'll I'll ask your first question. I'm not an expert on this topic at all, but he uh this gentleman last night talked about gen- yeah, I pressed the button. Genetic modification. Um yeah, I know it's Scary terms as scary as new litter. but if we can um, make like the, the crops more efficient, they don't need to take up much land to grow, or the shorter growing uh, period, the land that we do have, we can make more efficient. He also said, I mean, population is a big deal. We need to stem population growth, so it looks like it's leveling off now. You um, I mean, nobody really knows, but hopefully it's flattening it's slowing out, down. it's slowing down anyway, yeah, it'll hopefully plateau. But he uh, said that was a big deal. If we used genetic modification to make our plants more efficient and. Um, you know, have uh, like farms that, that grow corn, but they, imagine we could harvest them once a month instead of once or twice a year, and we could use that corn that we harvest to power our automobiles through um, biomass. So, I thought it was interesting, these are all the ways a,
9: a very interesting topic. It's difficult to, to understand all of the concepts involved in, in biomass. I've been trying to get a handle on that one, but it's, it comes from so many different directions at once that it's hard to get a a real grip on what's going on with it. Hmm.
5: I think I'll intervene at this point and thank you so much for the presentation. almost seven o'clock. Jim Byrne is a good friend of mine. Uh, Jim is uh, very committed to uh, take education beyond the classroom into the larger uh, classroom of uh, public opinion. Uh, of course, if we want to have an informed, uh, democratic debate on these issues, we, we have to have the information, the basic information out there. So Jim has um, dedicated a lot of his energy uh, to to, um, to that uh, mission, and uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Byrne.
8: Thanks, Tony. You guys, uh, um, you picking me up okay?
4: I'd say I that's, hear you a, fine. that's a big yes, I know. I'm
8: pretty <laughs> sure you guys can hear me pretty well. Um, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, how much can I wander? Because I'm a wanderer. You're going to follow me, right? You can follow yep, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, what we're going to do, first of all, guys, is we're going to make groups, okay? And so, I guess you three, up front, are a group, okay? Except you have to be a follower and, and make sure yeah. you get input from them, right? Because I know you're usually pretty shy. Tony's a shy guy, right? Have you guys noticed that? Yeah. Were you guys have insane?
1: Oh
6: oh I see,
8: okay. Um okay, so so you guys up there will be a group? Okay, you four? You three will be a group? Okay. I guess you two are a group. And and you four up there will be a group, okay? After I play a video clip, you're gonna get about thirty seconds. Within your group I want you to come up with with a word. You know just everybody volunteer word. What did that give you? What did, what did you feel out of seeing that clip? And let's, I want to bring those words forward. So words, maybe a couple words at most, maybe a phrase, three maximum, right? You know, that was amazing. That was exhilarating. That was disgusting, you know, whatever term, okay? Just so we can get some feedback from you right away, and you get a moment to, to kind of talk about the clip. Now, before we go any further, I also want to get a sense of who you are. So just for a minute, I want you to provide me, we're going to do a little informal survey that I do with a lot of groups that I talk to. And the survey only applies, and I see this actually looks like quite a, 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 you know, even an international group perhaps, but the survey only applies if you grew up in a cold country. So if you grew up somewhere tropical and it, it probably doesn't apply to you, but, you know, you can perhaps you can, you can play with it. But what I want to ask you, okay, for those of you who grew up in a cold country, I want you to raise your hands and hold them up high and keep them up high. It, it only, to wait till I ask the question. Um, yeah, you, you got, okay. If, if your parents told you as a little duffer or duffette not to put your tongue on cold metal in winter, that's what your parents told you, just put your hands up, okay? Okay, now, of those of you who have your hands up, keep them up if you put your tongue on metal, on cold metal in winter. Okay, there we have, well, a little, uh, just around half, hey, that did it. So, so, you guys are kind of the empirical science types, right? You didn't just believe it because somebody said it. You actually wanted to learn about it yourself. And so, you know, I, I kind of applaud that, actually. Um, I actually run that that little survey every year in my introductory atmospheric science class. Uh, and it's usually actually more like 67% of Canadians that have put their tongue on cold metal in winter, even though they knew better. One year I had somebody in the front row and I said, tell me about how you did it. And the student said, which time? (laughs) So, anyway, but it was legitimate, it turned out in the end. The first time was experimental. Will it really happen? And the next time was dad was carrying a bunch of groceries and was dropping groceries and was yelling, get the door, get the door. And so... She ran to get the door, but she was also carrying groceries, so she grabbed onto the cold door at her dad's urging with she didn't need to grab with her mouth, but he to get the door, so she grabbed it with her mouth and got frozen there. So I guess dad felt fairly guilty about that one. Um <clears throat> interrupt at will. Uh interrupt and say, Hey Jim. because, uh, you know, Tony did use Dr. Byrne a few times, but the only people who ever call me Dr. Byrne usually are lawyers when I'm on a witness stand at some big oil fence hearing or something like that. And usually that sort of, you know, no matter how confident you are in your science, when a lawyer after you, and you go, Dr. Byrne. And so, you know, I prefer gym. So gym works really well, all right? So you can just yell out gym if you want to ask me questions. Um, as Tony said, I do water. Water has been my life's work. I also do climate change because most of water is the atmosphere. You know. In any location on Earth between the atmosphere accounts for 60 to 99 percent of the water processes. Uh, you know, very little water actually ends up in rivers relative to the, the amount, say, that it falls and then evaporates again. So most of the water cycle is in the atmosphere. Hence I call myself an atmosphere surface water guy. Um, where I want to take you today is on a tour across Canada. And sometimes we'll branch out. Canada and go global, and sometimes we'll be very local in terms of some of the things we'll be talking about. Uh, but we're going to start in the East and look, go across Canada by virtue of the Water Under Fire television series. Now, I was the lead producer, or lead scientist on the water on the series. I decided to produce this thing because uh, I realized that there wasn't a good bridge between academics and the, and the science that we do and the public and classrooms, uh, in terms of getting the science out. My job is to publish papers. As soon as I publish a paper, my job is done. The it Dean says, good job. Now, I was damn sure that Ralph Klein never read my papers. And so I wasn't getting to Ralph Klein. And I wasn't getting to most of the other people who are out there. And so the idea was, let's you know, take the research a step further. And so Water Under Fire is an exposition of my colleagues in Canadian Water Networks that collects research. The Canadian Water Network is a national research agency, independent of, of any, you know, mostly independent university researchers and some associated government researchers who look at water resource issues across Canada. Okay. So that's what we're going to do today, is take a tour. Now, I'm thinking if I just get going, do I to take a break around 7.30 or do you take a break? Or has everybody got really big ladders in this class? Or is everything okay that way?
5: Uh, <clears throat> we can take a break if you like, or we can uh, keep going and finish a little early earlier. With the understanding that if you have to um, un- un- yeah. unleash your… Yeah, if you
8: need if you need some space, how's <laughs> that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's go on a tour then across Canada, and I'm actually going to start with the national series. So this is just with the, with you know Water Under Fire is a seven part television series, seven thirty seven twenty six minute shows. Uh, and we're going to start with a clip out of the National Series, which actually follows really well on Jennifer's stuff, because this is the clip on climate change in Canada, okay? So we'll get it going here. The demo to this, where
4: was, the air? was This,
8: Water uh, Defier is running on five different networks in Canada, um, CDO, Canadian Learning Television, Access, Saskatchewan Learning Television, and Knowledge Network in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah Access, to know, British so let's just make sure we got volume. A little bit is there volume control? Give me a little more volume here. Perfect. Okay, oh, yeah, let's see what's happening in climate change.
3: Climate change has more than a little to do with the transformation of our water. Now when your side talking about climate change, they'll say, oh the temperature's rising by two or three degrees. It doesn't sound like very much, but they're talking about is average. And even a small increase in that mean temperature can have a disproportionately large effect on severe weather events, like storms and droughts and floods. One of those events happened here in the Old Man River Valley in Lethbridge, Alberta. It was in 1995. They called it the Flood of the Century, and you can still see the remains of it today. All the dead branches on the bottom of this tree show how high the water went. And there's still blood in case in the bottom of it
6: here.
3: In 1996, it happened in the Saguenay River Valley in Quebec. After nearly 300 millimeters of rain fell in 36 hours, the flood left 10 people dead and caused $1.5 billion in damage. Red River floated and spilled at Winnipeg. So 25,000 people had to be evacuated. Cost of the damage, 815 million. That's was so Global. Over the past century, the size of the spring flows have grown noticeably. Without its floodway as a buffer, the city would have been swamped. But recently, floodwaters have risen so high they very nearly reached that floodway. Waiting for the water to crest causes much anxiety. Now, we're going to take it is beating up the flood rate to avoid repeating history. Well, so
2: they're building it larger essentially because they're afraid of the scenario of uh, a flood like that, which occurred in 1826.
3: And we came pretty close to that. We came pretty close to this structure being breached in, in 1997. It was within uh, you know, a very short margin of,
2: of uh, not meeting its goal, and that is diverting water away from the city. <coughs> I think climate change is an issue. One of, the, one of the fears, if you will, about climate change on, on the prairies is that the hydrological extremes will become even more extreme.
3: The dangers facing Canada's water due to climate change are affecting many different industries. McGill University's great institute for water resource management brought together Canada's business and science community to find solutions.
10: Some of the issues that came up were related to, for example, agriculture. How do we cope with drought? What are the impacts of... Uh, lower um, soil moisture on crop development. How can we be more efficient in our um, technology for agriculture? We also looked at problems related to transportation and navigation especially. And we had a representative from the navigation industry, of the the Federation of Canada, who told us that for every centimeter drop in the St. Lawrence River, um, cargo have to be reduced by 30 tons,
3: which is a huge um, loss to the in each. has been almost a constant condition on the prairies throughout the late 1990s and into the 21st century. By 2003, the persistent dry conditions primed trillions of grasshopper eggs to hatch in the prairies.
7: If the prairies change in the way that latest- some people think, and why that I need a little bit warmer temperatures in the winter, a little bit earlier spring, a little bit drier conditions perhaps. We will have earlier, more intense, and longer-lasting grasshopper outbreaks. Uh, we will have certain species that are presently occasional cuts uh, at such an advantage that they will be with us year after year. If that happens, we'll have big problems in economic loss, but also in, uh, in chemical insecticide use, and we have to be ready for that.
3: The Canadian Wheat Board said fields in Alberta and Saskatchewan were drier in the spring of 2004 than they were during the Depression of the 1930s, when lingering drought caused almost 14,000 Canadian farms to be abandoned. Alberta does not have enough fresh water to support intensive agriculture, growing cities, and industry, yet it continues to expand its irrigation. By studying the wealth of data stored in tree ranges, Dr. Dave Sautchen has a map of prairie climate records that go back hundreds of years. So these paleo-climate records give us a the context. They give us a historical context for understanding the current climate change that we're facing uh, throughout the globe, and in particular on the Canadian Plains, where the rate of climate change is forecasted to be as severe as just about any place. The different effects of climate change make headlines nearly every day in North America, yet there are still people who don't want to believe that it's real. But research has proven that climate change is already much more than just a threat. In Quebec, Réal de Coste is worried about the effect it will have on the power needs of eastern Canadians. So the impact of climate change is something real for us. It's already happening. Uh, it's the permafrost that's already melting. The time rule generation that's affected is the forest. It's coastal erosion in the Gulf. It's the uh, uh, water level in the St. Lawrence. It's, it's not something that we have to look at in the future, but also now, because it's already happening.
8: So think about your work. 30 seconds at max. and Then I'm going to interrupt you again. Impact. Jonathan, you're in on this too, eh? Uh, Worried.
0: We? Sure, Third, I was occupied for part of that.
8: That's okay, Jonathan. I just said, I hope you come up with a word as well. Urgent? Urgent? No. 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 no.
6: Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> There you go.
8: Five more seconds. You got a word? Okay. And we're back and running. And everybody's got a word, right? What do you guys come up with for words? word? Um, scary and responsibility to question mark. Agreement? Disagreement? Agreement. What did you guys come up with for a word? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, terrified. terrified. Okay. Oh yes. Okay. Well, that's... It, it was supposed to scare you. I don't know if I want to terrify you completely, but okay. Um.
0: Uh, we went through a few things. We went from frightening to beautiful,
6: right. and back again. Frightening
8: to beautiful and back again. That's interesting. We might come back to that and see where you're thinking. What do you guys come up with?
12: Okay. Hey guys, can we
8: focus on the? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay. And you guys up there? Frightening. So fear. Is, is, is it is it okay to say that fear seems to be a calm, pretty much a common theme? Beautiful. Can you guys give us ten words on that? Just a shot of
3: the prairies and Oh.
8: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that that actually the. The guy who shot the television series, the, the shooter, the cameraman, is Randy Tomiak, who is actually an Emmy Award winner for some of the work he's done. So definitely, the, the cinematography is wonderful. And, and you have that kind of backing, you know, it, it, it's it's really really positive. Um, I agree with you. I think it's scary. Um, it doesn't have to be scary. Is is the
2: thing? In Has Jonathan so got a word there?
8: Oh, oh. oh, yeah, we got yeah, we got their word. Yeah.
2: Is is a word from Belgium there?
8: Uh, I don't know. did did, did you come up? With a word for
2: it, Jonathan? I actually uh, had to cut out halfway
5: through. I had to deal with some uh, local, but vandalism, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, something okay. like that. But uh, I, I agree with what
8: was said.
4: Okay.
5: So okay. where where are you in the same place? Are you at the European Union now, uh, Jonathan?
8: Um, I'm no, I'm close.
5: I'm I'm near uh, European Union government offices. Yes. And you're outside. Uh, yeah, but it's rather warm here. Everyone uh, who, like, who comes by is concerned about how cold it is and whether I should whether I'm sleeping here or not.
8: So. And a, a person with a laptop. That's <laughs> a. And are you just yeah. picking up
5: like an ambient wireless? Like how are you making how are you connecting to the internet? I'm using my school connection. Oh. Okay. Yeah.
8: So let so let's talk about about frightening. Um does it have to be frightening? Well, I, I really appreciated Jennifer's talk with a great lead-in for this. doesn't have to be frightening. She talks about mostly, you know, her talk was about fuels and alternatives for fuels. But I really liked it when she came in with one statement that said, but maybe we could consume less as well. Now, everybody says we should consume less. And, you know, I've been saying for years we should consume less. And I realized that really saying we should consume less doesn't, have a lot of credibility uh, until we actually walk the walk. So I decided I should walk the walk. Now, the average Canadian emits about 20 tons of carbon per year of CO2. The average American emits about 26 tons of carbon per year. The average Chinese citizen emits about 2 tons of carbon per year. Okay, so Americans are worth more than 10 times, Canadians and Americans are worth more than 10 times what a Chinese citizen is in terms of impact, global you know, climate change. This is CO2 equivalent. So North America, with our, the Americans just picked over 300 million. We're just around 30 million. 330 million times 10, we're about 3.3 billion Chinese in terms of our impact in North America. So we are the ones that need to walk the walk. So how did I walk the walk? I was renovating my house. I converted it to geothermal heat. I'm saving around 13 to 15 tons of carbon emissions per year. I got my personal emissions down. I took the little test on the inner I got my personal emissions down to about 6 or 8 tons of carbon per year, compared to the average Canadian at around 20. You Not know, the average Albertan emits. We look at our per capita emissions in Alberta, in our energy-intensive environment, 67 tons of carbon per year. Albertans are the carbon, we're the energy gluttons of the world. So Alberta is going to have some reckoning to do in terms of the world. Let me come back to that saving, you know, of my six or seven or eight tons. It cost me 20000 bucks. How many of you got spare $20,000 to put geothermal into your home? doesn't sound appealing, right? Okay? I was changing my furnace over anyway. That saved me $3,000. Down to $17,000. I was changing my windows anyway. Instead of putting in the $450 windows, I put in the $220 windows. That saved me two or three thousand dollars or $3,000. And I got $2,600 from Enercan for, for improving my house. So my geothermal ended up costing me about twelve or $13,000. The mortgage payment on geothermal... The mortgage payment on that $15,000 is about $45 or $50 bucks a month. I don't have a natural gas meter anymore. I don't pay. I was paying an average of about $150 bucks a month on the equalization plan for natural gas. So I make, in my pocket, after I pay a mortgage payment on the geothermal system, I make around $100 bucks a month. I got $100 more disposable income. Uh, In the summertime, I I reverse the system and I air condition my house. So I only have an electrical bill. My electrical bill ranges from about $70 for consumption to about $120, $150 for consumption. That's to run seven appliances, three computers, three televisions, and a hot tub. And if you know hot tub is my little, you know, thing that I'm sneaking by the system because hot tubs aren't terribly efficient, it costs about $30, $40 a month just to run a hot tub. But I'm making money. And I'm making a difference. So if we'd actually go down that route, geothermal heat is cheap, clean, and almost free. And as a matter of fact, I'm being paid to use geothermal heat. So this is not that hard. This is not that scary. The scary thing is the politics, convincing people, and that's certainly an issue uh, in terms of convincing people that, that that we can make this difference. I hope that I've gone a step towards convincing you guys tonight. That you know, not. some of you may be buying a home in a year or in five years. Um, if we don't stop this boom, none of you will be buying a home because Alberta will be priced out of the range of most Albertans. That's the downside of the energy boom.
2: Anyway, co- other
8: comments or questions on that? Did you yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, I
8: just drilled five holes in my backyard down 200 feet each. And they probably go from that wall, one, two, three, four. And then and then the last one would be about maybe, you know, three meters beyond that. Five wells in the backyard. That's really interesting. Yeah. And it, it's paying it's for, it's, it's for itself every month. When we,
7: and when you look at it as the mortgage versus your gas savings, increased cost in your mortgage, it's actually,
8: yep. you're saving more per month. Exactly. Yeah. And I and wonder... How many of you think natural gas prices might go up? They say they're going to double or something. Yeah, well, I agree it. it's just So some of you agree that natural gas prices just might go up? Yeah, they might go way up, right? So natural gas prices go up. I'm really, you know, looking pretty comfortable. So anyway. um anyway. Other comments or questions? Or can we go? I want to take you somewhere else now. Okay, cool. Let me just uh, hop around here. Where we're going next is is let's visit the St. Lawrence Basin. We kinda of hopped around the country there and, and saw a few different things. Uh, but this is in the St. Lawrence Basin. And I want to show you what uh developments, and this is getting more directly onto water resource issues and, and some of the development that's so on. And let's let's play this, let it get your impression, and then we'll talk about it. Okay?
3: Like most of the other watersheds in this country, the St. Lawrence system is under pressure from agricultural runoff. But the difference here in Quebec is that uh, the really intensive agriculture, both with animals and with plants, is relatively new and it's growing fast. So the question now is whether the regulations to protect the water will keep up with the growth of that industry. If you look at Quebec, back in the 1960s, uh, the 70s, we were a net importer of so food and that culture wasn't terribly intense. Then we had the the Green Revolution in Quebec as well. Genetics. uh, We found corn crops and soybean crops that you could grow in a shorter season. Uh, Drainage rather than irrigation in Quebec. So we were able to drain our soils, warm them up two weeks earlier in the spring. So then we were able to grow corn, particularly, and as of late 80s, soybean intensely in Quebec. But it's only since the 80s and 90s where agriculture has become. Robert believes that most farmers in Quebec are interested in being environmentally responsible, but financial constraints make it difficult. He says government should encourage compliance by offering tax rates or other incentives. I guess with most environmental issues, uh, the key constraints I find are awareness. The public is generally just not aware of the problem, and governance is usually based on a four- or five-year mandate. And the environment is much longer mandate than that. Pollutants tend to go where the water goes. So if we can manage our water resources, keep it on the farm, recycle it, uh, increase that residence time so that you know, the nutrients
0: get used by the crops so the you know, there's biodegradation of the chemicals on the field,
3: uh, we should be able to reduce our load on ditches. Runs through agricultural country and connects Lake Champlain to the Saint Lawrence. Only 7% of the lake is in Quebec, and it's called Missisquoi Bay. The rest is in New York the Vermont. The lake drains from south to north, meaning pollutants from all parts of it tend to accumulate in the Canadian air. Toxic algae are out of control in the lake, fed by agricultural runoff. Beaches have been closed, some of them for years. Fish are contaminated and cannot be eaten. Agriculture is about 80% to blame. A change to farming regulations in Quebec allows farmers to operate closer to waterways than anywhere else in Canada. So rainfall washes manure straight into the ditches and then into the lake. In the 1980s, Lac-Champagne seemed like a place to make dreams come true for Christa Berchi and her husband, Renee. The couple moved from Switzerland to buy a campground in the recreational area. Now there are periods when they don't see a guest for months. The lake,
12: so the lake is polluted, and nobody does nothing about it. The beach is uh, deserted. It's 35 degrees, beautiful day, with nobody on the beach. Uh, during the hot summer days, after the hot summer days, there's a period where there's a bacteria which is called the cyanobacteria, uh, which is developing in the water and can be hazardous to human health. When this bacteria occurs, uh, the government closes down all activities on the water, that means shading, boating, uh, uh, fishing. What's happening to the businesses right now is awful, it's business are closing down. I don't know how long we can keep up, maybe another year, I hope so.
3: Krista and Renee tell their story to anyone who listens, from the media to all levels of government. Still nothing is being done.
12: Just just don't give up only promises. The lake has to be saved not only for business, for future generations to come.
3: his home on Blackstown Champlain in the early 1970s. Then, the lake was so clean, you could walk in up to your neck and still see the bottom clearly. Now, the water's muddy and filled with weeds and algae. The amount of silt being washed into the lake from farming areas has raised the water level significantly, so the huge clumps of slimy algae are washed up on his property. Desmond's grandchildren don't like to visit as much as they used to, and he's watching as his property value plummets right along with the water quality. Wow, well, you can't go and it into the water. The kids don't come down anymore. So uh, it's been getting worse and worse each year. And uh, last week, uh, the whole Southview was all covered with green. It looked like paint that was here. And the minister said he was going to do something. But this has been going on for at least for the last fifteen, twenty years, but right, to get work each year. It's not a place to live anymore. I mean you know you I bought to be at a LA lake, enough to be at this. I don't need this.
13: In Quebec we're blessed really with an incredible uh, freshwater resource. Um I think in Quebec we have the highest density of lakes. We have uh, somewhere anywhere between half a million to a million Province alone, and in terms of a uh, surface area that covers about 6
3: or 7 percent of the land area. he's Prairie is an expert on aquatic environments at the University of Quebec. We caught up with him at the less-than-scenic Pike River, which drains agricultural land into Missisquoi Bay, adding to its disastrous condition. The Pike River is a clear example of what happens to a waterway with eutrophication, out-of-control algae growth. It's
13: very often going on. This is just agricultural fertilizers coming out from the land and just fertilizing the lake like crazy. And there are really a ton of nutrients in here. I've analyzed actually some samples from this very river. And so we're talking, you know, 100 times or 200 times higher than than what should really be coming out of, of that river.
3: An increasing number of waterways are looking like this. He says the provincial government isn't doing enough about it.
13: The I don't think we have had uh, at the provincial level a good handle on what are our lakes doing. There's no programs that that you know hauls the year after year. And uh, I think that that's almost a scandalous that a uh, place so rich in lakes we don't even know our lakes.
8: 20, 25 seconds. Come up with a word. Or a couple of words. Okay. <laughs> Discouraged.
2: Bummed out?
8: Shot the back of my head.
2: <laughs> okay, everybody,
8: you're getting quiet, sounds like you have a word, a word for me, eh? Hey? Okay, you guys have a second more. Who's got a word? Who wants to contribute a word? preventable the, like they have to be the way they
14: are. And also. <laughs> Preventable and growth. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
8: There's a good lead-in. You guys? Okay, sad and socks are a little, you know, not quite scientific, and, but yeah, they, they work. Yeah, it certainly conveys the emotion. How about you guys the uh, top? Deadly Hopeless and Henderson, Slave and Henderson Lake. Okay, yeah. It's greater, great Slave or, or Lesser Slave? Okay. okay, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of lakes like that.
3: Yeah,
8: bummed out. Bum. Bummed out, okay. Bummed out. Sounds like he, you guys.
2: Okay. A so poor warranty.
8: So, are we in agreement more or less
0: here? Well, what, were, what would have been the better
3: options? Do want to that?
8: So refrigeration. The, the option to change that?
3: Uh, like, if you could go back in time, what would you? Yeah, well,
8: that what's interesting is, Carly. We have a contrast from the front end of the clip, where we have the research scientists from McGill University saying, "No, we got a green revolution here, and we farmers really care, and, and apparently we're not, you know, we're not causing too many problems, and they, and they want to do the best they can." Jonathan. And on the other side, we have apparently a fairly terrible pollution problem. There's another clip on the series that I won't get a chance to show you tonight, but it shows the Richelieu River. Coming into remember right at the start where it said the Richelieu River runs from Lake Champlain up to up to uh, to the St. Lawrence? You can see the plume. You can see the Richelieu for miles downstream of the confluence. The Richelieu is on the south side and it's a big brown colored you know, plume of pollution coming out of that, you know, that South Shore. Um, so, you know, they've got some problems there and it's it's because of, a, essentially, a stampede to really get pork production going in the, on the, in the south of Quebec. Um, and, and, you know, obviously the technology hasn't kept up with the production. So let's tie let's some of this a little bit to your class, because you guys are globalization, right? That's what you're interested in. Um, what globalization, in terms of this agriculture anyway, doesn't seem to have caught up yet? Because most of those hogs aren't being consumed in Canada. They're going elsewhere. What globalization doesn't seem to have caught up with yet is globalization and and industry isn't taking full responsibility for all of the costs. It appears that Canadians, Quebecers right now, are trading off a quality environment for a certain sector of the economy to make money. Um, and another sector is being hurt. And so far it appears, in in spite of a number of years of knowing about this problem, you know, nothing's being done. So it's kind of scary. Um, For me, that's my word, scary. Um, Lake Champlain, I don't know about you guys, but again, when I was just about this big in grade two or grade three, and they first started teaching me social studies, Lake Champlain was the lake that they all mentioned, when they were talking about Canadian history, about how beautiful it was. So this is almost like a Canadian landmark, even though most of it's in Vermont and New York. Nevertheless, Lake Champlain, named after Samuel de Champlain, uh, is, is, is terribly degraded at this point, as are a lot of the rivers running into Lake Champlain and on the south shore of St. So, Lawrence. So, you know, it's, it's something that, that has to be accounted for in this stampede to globalize and start to move products around the world Most of those industries, it seems, or some of those industries, and I'm going to show you some more, aren't covering the cost of, you know, the environmental cost of of those productions. Those are being traded off to something I call, and not my term, a lot of people call it the global commons. Have you brought up global commons here before? Not not really? A little bit? Okay. Are you guys familiar with that? How many of you have heard of the global commons before? Okay. I mean, there was a book came out before called The Tragedy of the Commons. It's just about how the commons get abused, right? I mean, the air, the water, the land. Does it belong to individuals or does it belong to all of us? Um, those of us who drove here, we just were asked how many of you drove here. We got an unfair advantage. We got to emit our, our carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and, and oxides of nitrogen into the atmosphere. We didn't pay any more for that. I well, mean, we did because we paid more for our car, but we didn't pay for the use of the atmosphere. You know, these guys aren't paying, this farming community is not paying for the use of the water that's absorbing, that's taking on their pollution. So, you know, we have to adjust our industry, both locally, regionally, nationally, and globally, to actually pay the full cost of using the global economy,
2: and that's really
0: I think the term in economics is negative externalities. the idea that a, a bad thing that happens in the production of a product is not priced in and, and, and into the retail of the product. And, and, and many bad things are priced in, uh, like in taking away the trash. I mean, if there's if, if trash produced, they have to pay, you know, pay the truck to haul it away, and that goes into the price of the computers who buy and things. But there's, like you say, there's a lot of things that are just pumped out that aren't priced into the product. Right? So are you making an economic argument? Okay. Are you making an economic argument? Is this what you're saying that the cost of things should include all of their 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 impact?
8: I think I'm making more of an environmental argument, but you're right; it it probably comes down in part to economics Mm -hmm. Uh, because right now there's an economic advantage to just pollute and not now. Precisely. Yeah, yeah, if that becomes a disadvantage, where in fact you have to cover the full cost of either containing or cleaning up your pollution, then that's the more appropriate pricing. That's the more appropriate uh, you know, alignment with, with protecting the global commons and, and, and uh, you know, a system that would, that would be more appropriate in the long term. Yeah, the cost, the, the cost
0: of fuel might increase, gasoline would increase. The cost of pork, bacon would go up with these the hog farms in the south of Quebec, but it, they would account for the damage that they inflict in, in creating the product.
8: Yeah, exactly. And if we want cheap food, we can trade it off. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we come down to, you know, until, you know, maybe until it starts to affect you or you or you, right? And then we get into the NIMBY, not in my backyard, uh, which is, is another issue in environment. You know, are you know it, it's fine when the people in Quebec are being affected, or the people in northern Alberta, or the people from the territories, or the people in China, or the people in Bangladesh. Uh, and that's far away, and often we don't think we have a lot of control over that, but I think we do. I
5: think we're really uh, at the core of something here. Uh, um, this area has obviously been farmed for hundreds of years, I guess thousands of years if you want to really go into it because there was, it's, it's agricultural indigenous peoples, people who live by corn, beans, and squash in, in that part of the world. But the settler communities, you know, the oldest part of Canada, so. It would seem that there was a long period of time when agriculture was taking place and the pollution was uh, manageable or less. Uh, So what you're suggesting is that the whole nature of the agricultural economy shifted to a single product, say, for for export. You you get a total specialization now to produce hogs in that area. And uh, so it's remarkable or it's... Dramatic how uh, it just increases the, the pressure on the, the pollution. That, that there was a system, so, so it, it raises the question. Uh, historically, uh, food was mostly grown for indigenous consumption. These farms were multi-purpose farms, growing a bit of vegetables, a bit of livestock, a bit of chicken, some dairy. And 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 now with globalization, you you specialize. Uh, and, and you produce for export. And, and it has these, these consequences. So it does sort of open up the discussion. Is there something negative about this going to the past? Might that be in a way a progressive thing to get back to, uh, a, a view of self-sufficiency that, uh, when it comes to food production, for instance, you, you try to, uh, uh, the indigenous, you, you try to produce food locally and, 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 and in variety and, and, and across the whole range of food types.
8: Uh, I, without a doubt, when, when we're getting into at, at, its, at its worst or best, depending upon your perspective, because agricultural scientists will argue that that you know they're very efficient. Uh, ecologists will refer to a lot of those agricultural practices as monoculture. And, uh, you know, where you're literally raising a single entity over large areas. And monocultures are just the opposite of what was there. What was there before was, was biodiverse and therefore quite sustainable. Monocultures are quite sensitive. In fact, we have to really intensively protect monocultures, right? That's why we use a lot of pesticides and, and herbicides and, and fertilizers and so forth to support singular crops whether that be beef or pork or corn or whatever it might be, soybean. Uh, so, yeah, without a doubt, we're away from diversity, and we really have to respond quickly in order to protect that lack of diversity. Uh, and so, yes, I I think it's a weak point. Now, how far we can go back? Uh, I've seen discussions, and if you're looking for a really great read, um, there's, there is a, oh darn, now I'm going to forget the title. Bobby Kennedy has a wonderful book out. Bobby Kennedy, of course, one of the famous Kennedys in the United States, uh, and, and the book is called Crimes Against Nature. Now, it's, it's a political book in part. Uh, he, he does definitely criticize the Bush administration uh, and the U.S. government, um, but he, he builds some very strong arguments as to why family farms, with their diversity, are actually more sustainable than monocultures and mega farms and farm industries. Uh, so you know it's it it would be an interesting read if you if you have time to go look at that and there might be a, a text to consider in this in this class and when,
5: when you when you think about monoculture, it goes far beyond agriculture uh think for instance of uh the English language or Cantonese or Mandarin or spanish um, or um or Arabic. Uh, there's about ten languages that are in a sense devouring the faith of and the community life of thousands of indigenous languages. So in that sense, the monoculture is what we see happening on the land in the way we do our agriculture uh, in a way we're doing it to ourselves uh, you could you could even perhaps think about education and and are we are we enc- encouraging Diversity and pluralism, or are we uh, encouraging uh, a particular model of human success and, and uh, encouraging people to, to strive after that particular model and thus become more similar?
8: Um, people are monoculture. I would suggest. Yeah. Somebody
3: had a question.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering, like, where do you see, like, we're talking kind of about uh, monoculture and organic farming and like the polyculture. Uh, where do you see it really? start taking off, like, if you find uh, developed nations are carrying it, like, m- getting more into organic stores the developed nations, like, you have Cuba, and I know there's another one in Chile, and stuff like that, In developing nations where they can't afford all the chemicals and stuff like that that we can, they move to, like, the older organic methods that actually work way better.
8: I, I, think, I think, you know, the answer is, is both or all of the above. Um, without a doubt, I mean, there is organic. I mean, I quit, I quit eating beef because I didn't appreciate the way it was raised. What raised? I didn't like the way particularly beef. And now I, I eat beef again because I can buy natural beef off a small operator. So you know, I, I eat that. Um, you're right. In developing world, the developing world, in fact, has a chance to go right past a lot of the North American or a lot of the, the first world technology uh, and use better technology than what we use. And that's in, in many, many areas. One of the examples is cell phones. You know, they're not even installing in many developing world countries uh, uh, the, the infrastructure of copper wire for telephone lines. They're just going straight to cell networks. Um, now, having a cell phone stuck to your you know, that's that's another question. But probably not, you know, so much in, in in this context. But there's going to be all kinds of technologies that are available or that could be available, and that leads to another point that I was going to make a little later in the discussion, but. One of the best ways we can address any of these issues is innovation. And, you know, putting resources into innovation typically tends to solve the problem. When we're talking about nuclear energy, without a doubt, nuclear hasn't had any innovation or trivial innovation for 20 to 30 years because it's got a bad rap. Does it deserve the bad rap? In some respects, yes. In some respects, no. If I'm going to jump on the nuclear into the nuclear discussion for a minute. I'm a never-say-never never guy. I'll listen to anything, but nuclear's got a really crappy reputation, and they've got a long ways to go to prove that that they can do better. Um, bed methane has a really, really bad reputation. If we had time, I could talk about Wyoming and how they've destroyed watersheds and caused terrible problems in in, in Wyoming. Coal methane wants into Alberta in a big way, and they're here in a big way, and most of you, most of us, don't know about it. But coal bed methane is here, and you know what they're saying? Don't worry, we learned. Trust us. We learned. We know Wyoming's horrible, but don't worry, we learned. We'll, we'll do better. And we say, Where's the research to prove you can do better? So we just, we can. Do you have research? Do you have publications? No, we don't. And so, you know, there's this concern. That you know, innovation can solve problems. Lack of innovation won't solve problems. Anyway, that that's a long-winded answer to your, to your question. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay, let's continue our tour. Any so report
5: gonna... on Jonathan? Has he totally disappeared?
6: Yeah.
8: Um, yeah. We're going to switch out to the west here. West here so, um, just have to switch DVDs. Moment, and then will be. Anybody worked in the sands? Yeah, anybody worked in the OSN? Yeah, worked in, work in the energy industry? Okay. Yeah, what you do? Worked for MNAC? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, we just need to get a uh, response here from the computer. We're going out west and I think we'll start playing um Here you are. I think we'll start in the Canadian Rockies, because you know what? We've been we've been hopping around in climate change. We popped all around and I just try to get a response back from my computer here with the new D V D. Uh we went all around Canada on the climate change trip. We focused in on Quebec and actually well before I come right out west I'd like to take you to Walkerton. Because so Walkerton was kind of a sad Uh, state of affairs. I'm going to have to kill this uh, program and bring it back again just Video player's locked up, so I'm just having to kill, pull up, kill off a bunch of boxes here. So we're going to go to Walkerton, and has uh, anybody spent any time in that part of Ontario? Well, everybody remembers what happened in Walkerton, right? That's not, Is anybody not familiar with the Walkerton situation? You're about to be a lot more familiar, familiar with it. People died, right, from drinking water. Right, hemorrhagic or coli. Has anybody had a an hemorrhagic coli attack? Has anybody ever been infected with a waterborne pathogen? It's uh, an interesting experience. I knew uh, of a study in Texas where they actually paid $1,000 apiece for people to come in and be infected with cryptosporidium, which is a parasite, and causes essentially projectile emissions from both ends of your body. Um and so they 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 paid them a thousand dollars to be infected with varying loads of the back of the of the protozoan from just a few oocysts up to millions and millions of oocysts. The idea being they're checking to see just what level the human body could fight off in terms of of you know infections of cryptosporidium. So what what could we tolerate in the environment? What could we tolerate in our drinking water? What happened actually with cryptosporidium uh, was was the uh, everybody got sick. It just took a little longer for those people who were infected with very low doses to get sick, because it takes—you know—those those those, those uh, have to split and split and split and split and, split and create billions to really infect your body. Okay, this is really. If you've got parasites, then definitely you have to boil your water, yes, and that's that's why you get water orders. I'm going to have to reboot because it appears that I'm um, locked out of the video player. So we'll just take a minute to reboot. This would actually be a good time if you do want to break for a minute, five minutes, why do you run and uh, do whatever you might like to do, and we'll start again in, in five minutes, okay? Okay, good idea. Yeah, it's just.
5: You don't want to just throw it on mice?
8: I don't, oh, it's, it's not, it's just uh, an issue. I think it's this brand new, wonderful laptop, which isn't performing that well. <laughs> you yeah. want to, like, I'm pretty sure mine would perform. Well, this will come back in a minute, once no. I reboot, yeah. It's just, it's just it might have, maybe it's, uh, I can't see that any of the video links, any of the other external links causing any problems. Maybe it couldn't find that link when we tried to come back, I don't know. Because yeah. I've done this before in this room. It works like a charm. So we just run into a few tonight. There's been a few weird things happening.
5: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, so we, we knock off uh, Mark and Regina for Belgium, and then we lose Belgium.
6: Yeah.
3: There's not a more startling example of what happens when manure infects drinking water than the tragedy that befell Walkerton. Spring rains in 2000 washed cow manure into a shallow well, one of three that supplied the town's drinking water. What happened in Walkerton was not the fault of farmers. It was the failure of water management systems and personnel at all levels. Incompetence at the town's water treatment plant meant the water was barely being chlorinated. Seven people eventually died from the effects of E. coli 0157 infection. Nearly 3,000 became seriously ill, many sustaining permanent kidney damage. Dr. Steve Rudy was a member of the research advisory panel to the Attorney General's Walkerton Inquiry report.
1: The community ended up drinking water for a number of days, uh, when it was heavily
6: contaminated.
3: Well number five was the source of the outbreak. It was badly designed, allowing groundwater to enter the aquifer. The well is capped now, but it operated inefficiently for years.
1: There were failures throughout the system. I mean, the fact that this was identified when the well was first installed, uh, more than 20 years before the outbreak, uh, and that uh, there were signs all the way through the years that there were contamination problems at this well, and uh, no action was ever taken to resolve that.
3: catastrophe motivated many communities across Canada to improve their own water purification system, trying to prevent history from repeating itself.
13: Walkerton has been a tremendous wake-up call for all of us. If I had been
1: asked in April of 2000, would so people die in a southern Ontario community from the drinking water? I, I wouldn't have imagined it possible. But I. Uh, since then, I think you can connect
13: uh, the experience here and realize that there's a lot of small communities all the way across Canada that are vulnerable to this kind of failing.
3: Pat Halpin is a freelance reporter who covered the Walkerton inquiry for the Kitchener Waterloo Record.
14: A system came crashing down. Uh, a whole system that was full of full of problems and full of it had been on its last legs for a long time. I think in terms of gutting ministries in terms of not following through on what regulations are supposed to be, people not understanding why they were doing what they were doing, Um, complacency, big, big role, Um, misplaced trust in the cleanliness and the health of our own environment, Um, terrible consequences. There are people still sick, they're trying to document the pattern of complaints that still linger, joint problems, bowel and and gut problems. Um, Mm
3: It took a crisis of this magnitude to get the government's attention. The province has pledged $50 million to fund both a center of water quality in Washington and a new clean water legacy trust. The end goal is to make Ontario's water the cleanest in the world and to provide training for water system operators. Hearings for the Washington inquiry took nine months. In the final recommendations of the report, Justice Dennis O'Connor recommended 93 changes relating to the provision of drinking water and drinking water services in Ontario.
14: People walk walking and don't want this to happen to anyone else. That has been said over and over and over again that they suffered through this and they suffered enormously um, and they never want it to happen to anyone else and they want the regulations to be there, they want the government to be responsible but they they appreciate that the government has to be responsible by actually doing something
8: Now that makes fifteen seconds. Your word, okay? Can we go responsible. I don't think we have Jonathan anymore. He keeps trying. Yeah, he keeps trying. Yeah. You guys always got a word? hmm Go for it. What's your word? Irresponsible. Okay. You guys got a word already? Irresponsible, what do you got? A lack of diligence. Regulation issues, so no regulation, so I Reality, yeah. Definitely. I think yeah. yeah. Okay, Do you
6: want Oh, this a question. Um, is e. coli, is that from the
8: That was from, I believe, an acute exposure. The town, the town had the contamination for a number of days and people were drinking it, but it takes 7 to 10 days to incubate in your body, and so by the time they got to the thousands of people infected and realized oh, sure. no, it, was, it was, yeah, so definitely it was, it was, they may have had some chronic level of exposure, because in the past they hadn't been doing a good job, it turned out, in the investigation. Okay, yeah. cool. is that, that, you know, some of you focused on, okay, they learned from it, I, I think that's interesting because Steve Rudy made the comment that there was previous infections that had been written up in prominent journals and not, you know, there hadn't been any changes happened. Other infections in Ontario, uh, and there hadn't been the changes made. So is that, uh, you know, stupidity, inability to learn, or is that a disconnect in the science to real world? And that's in there because I tried to make the point earlier on that my job is to publish referee papers The scientists publish the referee papers, but apparently nobody in the real world read about them, you know, so, yeah.
10: Uh, I just have a quick question. If some mistakes have been made by some countries already, why other countries have to follow the mistakes and repeat them again and say something like, oh, we learned something from the mistakes. Why don't we take some action before the mistakes,
8: you know? i agree i think that that's probably the weakness is we're not learning from our mistakes in many cases uh and we're not reacting sufficiently and again you know why why is that happening why are we getting that disconnect
6: we we
10: don't learn it or we like pretend we didn't see it Mm -hmm. like when there's a conflict with the economy
8: you know so yeah i i think that that's that's an excellent point, and, and, and you've actually hit on something else that, that I think is very important, and I wasn't going to go here, but you you opened the door. I recently published a book chapter, uh, an invited book chapter about Alberta, and that the title of my chapter was Silent Lies and the Looming Alberta Water Crisis. And the silent liars are people that, and, and you know, I started off with a quote from Martin Luther King. And the quote says, "In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends." And I think what you're suggesting is a lot of people who know better aren't speaking out sufficiently. Uh, you know, it's not being pushed in favor of things like economic development, like increased capitalism, like globalization. I'm not sure what that was, so I can just continue, right? Um, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I think people are. Intimidated, afraid, suppressed—whatever other descriptor it is—people don't speak out. People who often know better, um, and so that's something maybe that you have to consider in the future. Yes. In in Walkerton, the, the, the the federal government has said, we don't have anything to do with water, you know, potable water, so we won't do anything about, you know, monitoring. It's, it's the responsibility of the province. And the province said, essentially said, we're cutting budgets. It's the responsibility of the local towns and cities. Uh, so the province, were, you know, was, we're not infecting these plants anymore. And they were just requiring routine filings of, of information. As it turns out in Walkerton, uh, two rather now infamous brothers, the Cable brothers, who actually ran the water treatment plant. Didn't have appropriate training, didn't have uh, uh, the capabilities, and in fact falsified. Even when they got lab data back that said the water was contaminated, in fact they changed the numbers and reported it appropriately. So they were criminally negligent and, and went to jail. But others above, you know, they they removed all checks and balances so that two two brothers who bid to run a water treatment plant got it because they were the cheapest. It had no qualifications, no capability, and were in fact, in fact fraudulent in their operations. So it was, it was kind of a sad state of affairs in Walkerton. I'd like to put Walkerton in a
5: pretty big uh, historical context. Uh, Walkerton was a symbol I think that we had gone too far in terms of uh, uh, downgrading government and the concept that government after all is the, is the one agency that deals with the welfare of the citizens. The the corporations are, are, are working for profit and, and uh uh and this really goes back to Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, to the lesser extent, Brian Mulroney, after the Berlin Wall comes down. There's the example, look at that terrible socialist experiment. surely that you know we, we, we're going to now make more space for our businesses, deregulate businesses, uh Make government get smaller, uh, down, downgrade government, privatize services, and so Walkerton became a kind of symbol that, um uh, this process eventually is going to kick in. It's going to have
8: uh, very severe effects, health effects
5: on, on, uh,
8: individuals. And that's what Pat Halpin said, right? When, when, when Pat Halpin, that reporter, she said our system came crashing down. I think the fact that we gradually dismantled the system, it crashed in Walkerton. And, and you know, Steve Rudy said he never would have dreamed – he didn't believe – as, as a water professional, a water treatment specialist, he didn't believe the system had crashed so far. He never thought that people would die in an Ontario city from drinking water that had come from a treatment plant. So, yeah, the system definitely crashed. In terms of exactly what initiation of the crash is, is certainly one discussion, but the system – Had really crashed, and I I got you for your question. I just want to share one thing. One really strange thing: when you're making environmental television shows, it's different than doing environmental research, because you want to get compelling video clips and and sound bites and things like that. And when Pat Halpin said our system came crashing down, she should have had the saddest, most you know, sincere look on her face. Instead, she smiled. I was standing across from her, and as an environmental television producer, that was such a good piece. I had a big grin come over my face because I said, "I know that." You know, my my thought process was that piece is going in the show, and I this big grin was on my face. And she asked me afterwards, "What were you smiling about when I said that?" So it's kind of ironic uh, that I was smiling when she was talking literally about the system crashing down and people dying, but it was an excellent piece. And speaking uh, of the yeah. system crashing down, did we just uh, did our oh, system man. crash? Uh, no, it's just I
5: want to just point out that Jonathan is over there in uh, Brussels. It's 2.30 in the morning, and he is persistently trying, right. trying and trying and trying. Next time he comes and, on, uh, should we all give him a round of applause? Uh, so uh, no, I don't know if, do if we're going to see him again, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there is a, a noble soul over uh, there trying to uh, add to our discussion. You had a question up here.
6: I know, well,
11: and we've, we have... Um, experts like you saying so, and the government's not listening. Isn't this the same thing as Walkerton? Instead of somebody getting sick, it's, we're, we're running out of water, and by then it might be too late.
8: I, I think very much so, yes. Um, I, I have publicly criticized the irrigation industry for continuing to promote expansion. And in fact, we've expanded from about 1.1 million to 1.5 million acres of irrigation in the 90s. Uh, at a time when we've been saying, your water supply is decreasing, we're running out of water, and I think that's completely inappropriate. You know? so, yeah. so we haven't learned from our mistakes. No, we're, is not. we're not very well from yeah. um. in,
1: in Canada, though, isn't agriculture the second most uh, used to water, isn't it? Like the first is, I think it's uh, something to do with generating electricity or heat. <coughs>
5: Actually, is constantly walking in front of the I must in,
8: yeah, so keep an eye on oh, the Oh okay, yeah. Um, yeah, this is this is um agriculture is the big user of water consumer, yeah, worldwide and certainly in Western Canada huge consumer. Nobody else consumes more water even then than agriculture. Uh but but you know what what uh, uh other users are big users where they, they take it maybe change its quality in some way and return it to the water source. That might be in electrical generation, a, a nuclear power plant or, or a coal-fired power plant might return a lot of water to a system in a in fairly consistent chemical quality, but much change in thermal quality, which might be very hard on the ecosystem. So, you know, you get other users. Calgary is a huge user of water just to dilute their pollution. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I uh, actually just
1: learned the other day that so oil sands in Port McMurray. It takes two to five
8: barrels of water to produce one barrel of oil. We're going to go there in a few minutes. Can we come back to that one? Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Did somebody else have a question? Uh, yes. Yeah, Can you just
1: touch
0: on uh, global warming and uh, glaciers melting and how much of the Alberta water supply comes from glaciers and mountains?
8: Perfect lead into the next clip. Okay? We're going there. Right now, we're going to the, to the Alberta mountains and see what is happening with. <laughs> with uh, glaciers and snowpacks and and river runoff. And this is the Rocky show, if I can get at it. Here we are. So
6: this
8: is this is a show about the Rocky Mountains. Oops, no, that's not the one I want to be in. That's, I want to go back to the Prairie show. I want to be in the Eastern folks of the Rocky. Mountains. And we're going to lead off. In the Rocky Mountains here, this 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 clip, this this particular show leads off in the Rocky Mountains because that's where almost all of our water comes from. So this is a clip called Alpine Water. Same yeah. thing. Uh, no. Okay. So uh, it's
0: really uh, the, 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 the better. I really like postcards. The discussion focuses
3: on the geology of the Rocky Mountains, with meltwater from the Bow Glacier in Grand National Park. Nothing seems more pure than glacial water. But as you're about to find out, it ain't necessarily so. I think most
7: people would expect that this would be a pretty pristine setting. However, that's not what a 1993 survey of fishes by Environment Canada showed. It showed that levels of toxicity and DDT and other contaminants were unusually high for lakes anywhere.
3: to study Boe Lake after the fish in this sub-alpine environment in the middle of a national park were so contaminated that Health Canada had concerns about people eating them. The problem was in the ice. Each winter, a new layer of snow and ice forms on the glacier. The layers are called strata. While they're forming, contaminants from the other side of the world, carried by wind currents, are deposited on the glacier when they hit cold air at high altitudes. Fog fallout, volcanic ash, and industrial emissions are all part of the snowpack that eventually melts into the lake and gets into the food chain. Schindler studied the snowpack at different elevations to see how the contaminants were distributed.
7: We found that for most contaminants, uh, things like oxytine and DDT and PCBs, uh, there was a great increase in the deposition with increasing elevation. Then we got to thinking that these things were mostly used in larger amounts uh, earlier on in the century, particularly DDT and processing and PCBs. So we did a transect back through the layers and found that indeed, for most things, there was higher deposition back in the 1950s and 1960s.
3: Studies in the Sierra Nevada Mountains and the Alps in Europe have shown nearly identical results to both glaciers. The same concentrations of contaminants are present at the same elevation. Leading Schindler to conclude the poisons that come to rest in Alberta's Rockies have been falling on mountains the world over. Schindler believes it's not too late for people to make changes, but it can't happen soon enough. The only thing we can do to change this
7: pattern if these pollutants are truly coming across the uh, ocean is by international treaty. And there are some attempts at that by international organizations uh, around the northern hemisphere at present, but they're going at a, pardon the, the glacial
2: phase.
3: We leave Bow Glacier and travel further south to the headwaters of the Old Man River. Another tributary of the South Saskatchewan River City. Here, Dan Pankery explains how continuing global changes are radically impacting this water supply. In
2: the Glacier National Park, where I do a lot of my work, there used to be 150 glaciers. We're down to about 27 now. And many of these that were very large in size are reduced to less than one one-third of their previous size. And this is really important. In the streams and all the snowpacks are gone and it's dry elsewhere. And furthermore, this is cold water, and many of these organisms need that cold water. So the glaciers repeat and shrink and disappear one by one, we'll see some profound changes in the water supply and the aquatic organisms that are dependent on those water supply.
3: Annual snowfall in the mountains is changing too.
2: In fact, over the last fifty years. melt out, and also how quickly. Uh, for instance, the initiation of stream flow in our area has also gotten earlier. So there's a more uh, intense period of, of uh, snow melt and flow from the mountains. And what that means is that there's less later on in the summer to nourish these streams and to provide downstream water users. In scientists study patterns in mountain
3: snow they were alarmed at what their research reveals for these rivers, the lifeblood of the prairies.
8: By the 2020 to 2050, we believe that the snowpacks in these, in these alpine areas will have been reduced by as much as 40% on average. And that essentially means a close to 40% reduction in the water flow that we would expect in the Saskatchewan River system and other river systems like right. the North Saskatchewan, like the Athabasca, uh, you know, like Missouri, the Missouri itself. Well, last guy was kind of a funny looking duck, eh? Anyway, 10 seconds and you got to come up with a word. Go. Confer quickly.
6: Hmm. Desperate?
8: going? Desperate? <laughs> For a word, or is that your word? <laughs> Okay, these guys are come up with desperate in the front. How about you guys?
2: <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah.
8: adjustments you got? Sacrifice. Sacrifice? okay. Well, I mean, it seems like we're all sort of on the same team, so I guess this just conveying something that, that everybody hears. You, you see where it addresses your issue of, of you know, concerns about glaciers and um That's what I do. That's been my prime area of research for the last 15 years, is looking at the impact of climate change on snowpacks in alpine areas. The discussion you hear about glaciers shrinking, and everybody goes, oh God, the glaciers are shrinking, everything's going to disappear. It's not the glaciers. The glaciers contribute at most a very tiny percentage to the to the total water supply. <laughs> Excuse me. But the glaciers are kind of like the thermometer that, you know, you stick in your mouth to take your the temperature. They're indicative of a fever. But the glaciers disappearing are indicative of the fact that the whole alpine snowpack, which does contribute better than 99% of, of the runoff, or 95% in, in many years of the runoff that we have in the prairies, that's what's seriously declining. So that prediction, that's based upon a number of years of modeling that was done, and it never changes. Well, I wish it would change. I wish climate change would go away. I wish I'd finally, you know, run the models and go, hey, wait a climate change isn't as bad. You know, there's no benefit at all for changing the climate within my model or anybody else's model. I wish it would go away. But every time we do it, we do it a little better. We improve the science. We come up to about the same numbers: 30, 40, 50 percent decline, and that agrees with what people came up with in California, with in Washington State, in the Rockies to the south of us, Dan Baker's work in Montana. Uh, you know, so we're looking at a 30, 40, 50 percent decline in our snowpack which almost equates to a 30%, 40 50% decline in our water supply because almost all our water supply comes from snowpack in the Rocky Mountains. So, I played this clip some before last for a group of about 30 or 40 American academics who teach Canadian studies. They were brought on a tour by the Canadian consulate in Portland through western Canada. And I played this clip, and at the end, when the clip finished, I looked, and they all had these this look on the faces of sort of they were mortified, and I sort of went what? And they were referring to the it was the early part with Dave Schindler or the glacial water. They said we drank that water, and I said well, what did you do that for? And they pointed they turned and they pointed at the consular officer and said
3: Kevin made us,
8: and Kevin got all embarrassed, and he had said you all have to drink this water the purest water in the world, it's Canadian glacier water, nothing's purer and they just watched this clip, being told it was filled with contaminants, and, they, and literally one of them said, are you going, Are we going to die? And I said, yes.
6: <laughs> and left
8: that for a moment or two to think, and I said, of course you're not going to die. The contaminants that we're talking about are, are, are trivial in the water, but what they do is they biomagnify, they move up through the food web where you have microbes eating, microbes eating, larger microbes, then invertebrates, then more invertebrates. And each time you go up through that, you know, chain, you you concentrate the pollutants. And so when, by the time you get to the fish, which are way up trophic levels on the food web, that's where the contamination, is. it becomes serious. And pregnant women's children are not supposed to eat the fish out of the lake. Which is really, you know, contrary to what we believe about a place like Banff, right? We think it's absolutely a pristine, lovely environment. So... Our, our impacts are, are, are spreading, that's for sure. We've since done research, you in the science community, but Canadian scientists have done research and discovered that, in fact, substantial amounts of that population are coming from Canadian and American agriculture as well. So it's not just blames on the developing world's use of BDT and things like that still. A lot of it comes from us.
6: So, anyway,
8: any any uh play another clip? Or? I've actually... I've certainly got one more clip to play. Yes, I think maybe we should speed along with that because it's really a, a critical issue in, in Alberta and in Canada and in the world. Okay, so we're going to go up north to the All sands. So I just have to switch to the northern uh, show. But this is this is this is uh, I think fairly compelling, and and we'll we'll wrap up with this. I wish I had time to show you one more too about about the uh, the uh, north, but we'll just have to. Go with oil sands for now. This is the story of the Athabasca oil sands and where they're going right now. The
3: Athabasca River was born hundreds of miles south at the Athabasca Glacier. It's part of the Columbia Icefields in Jasper National Park. The foot of this glacier has receded steadily for the past 100 years, more than a kilometer and a half so far. The Athabasca River flows through the Athabasca oil sands in northern Alberta. The largest known deposit of crude oil in the world lies under one of the most pristine, undisturbed sections of Boreal Forest, the forest that grows at higher latitudes of the northern hemisphere. The oil provides huge export revenues, most of it, 70%, is being shipped to the U.S. One of Canada's foremost water experts, Dr. David Schindler, and wetlands expert Dr. Suzanne Bailey travels with us for this episode of Water Under Fire.
7: We are very.
3: flying over the open pits demonstrates how everything here functions on a mammoth scale. Here are the currents and the planned oil sands projects. All combined, they cover over 25,000 square kilometers. That's just about as big as Lake Erie. With operations continuing around the clock, they're continually growing. The largest heavy hauler trucks carry 400 tons of unrefined oil sands. How big is that? Well, that's me standing beside the truck. Depending on the percentage of vitamin, it takes about two tons of oil sand to produce one barrel of synthetic crude. So, one load on one of these trucks produces about 200 barrels of oil. To extract enough vitamin to make one barrel of oil requires at least three barrels of water. Looking at this truck, to extract the 200 barrels of crude oil it's carrying will require 600 barrels of water. Most of this water is coming out of the The extraction process uses water almost right to the end. After it's crushed at the mine site, the oil sand is mixed with warm water and pumped into the extraction plant through a pipeline. The process, called hydro transport, also provides conditioning, breaking down the bonds that hold sand and vitamin together. From here, this oil sand slurry is fed into a primary separation vessel where more hot water is added. The slurry separates into sand at the bottom, midlands, which is a combination of vitamin and water, and vitamin frost above. Vitamin frost is scraped off the top. Solids and water are removed from the vitamin to purify it. The midlands go through a secondary extraction process, and the sand is pumped into the tailings cloth. What's behind
7: this?
3: plant, they say they're serious about environmental responsibility. The company takes the raw hydrocarbon, or bitumen from the ground the same way other companies do, but that's where the similarities end. Engineers found a way to use the naturally occurring salty basal water in the refining process, so it actually buffers the oil and reduces the amount of water needed from the river. They also work with a closed-loop system, meaning none of the contaminated water is dumped back into the Athabasca. Shell has already had the lead here for 50 years and is sitting on about 5 billion barrels of crude oil. The company's major challenge is finding cheaper ways to get it out of the ground while holding true to its promise to be a better steward of the land.
2: There's going to be some impact in the environment. You can't avoid that, but we can minimize that impact and also we can work with our neighbors. We're going to grow this business. We have to build a deal with the and environmental effects because we're part of the
3: we are working with other industry reps
14: to understand where they withdraw water, to try to get a more realistic scenario of what the actual water withdrawals will be, because we always take very conservative to uh, when we do our treatment stuff, so we're
3: trying to get the real picture. Once the wetland has been drained, restoring it is not as simple as adding water. The entire ecosystem has been removed. so Shell is opting more often to convert former wetlands into violence. The material at the bottom of the tailing pond are removed and put in pits, and then we cover it with soil and we reclaim it to a dry landscape. Suzanne Bailey takes issue with that approach. As a professor in biological sciences at the University of Alberta, she studies the vast peatlands in the boreal forest.
12: The oil sands development are over 50% wetlands. One plant fine, two, then you start to get more. So it's a cumulative effect of all these plants that so we really the long term
8: impact of that's gonna be on our water. Okay, you can just relax. You don't even have to work this time. I want to paint a picture for you. Twenty-five thousand square kilometers of sand of leases for oil sands. Okay? We stand standing right here where I am in left which look west. All the way to the continental divide. Alright? The old man river system look southwest at about a forty five degree angle uh, to the Old Man River system, uh, to, to Glacier National Park in Montana. That's the southern boundary of the Old Man Basin, ending in Lethbridge. Look north on about a 45-degree angle to the southern boundary of Chananaskis Country. That, that triangle is the scale of the Athabasca oil sand. That's 25,000 square kilometers of land. Everything from here upstream all the way to Glacier National Park along the Continental Divide and out to Country. That's the scale of disruption in northern Alberta with the Asbest oil sands. So, somebody asked about water supply. We use three barrels of oil because that's what Neil Kamada, the vice president oil sands at Shell, told us his, his technology was going to get to. That's the best they've ever promised. They've never achieved it. So our little animation there, which shows three barrels of water per barrel of oil, in fact, they're running five to seven, and in some cases, ten barrels of water per barrel of oil. Um, you know, I have seen reports from oil science companies that say, we're down to 2.87 barrels of water used per barrel of oil. And I said, good, we can cut your water license then and leave the water in the Athabasca River, and you'll only take three barrels of water now for every barrel of oil. And they say, oh, no. No, no. We still want to keep our license at 15 barrels or whatever they've got approved. So, you know, they're having a tremendous impact on the water quantity. But more important, what's 25,000 square kilometers of oil sands pits and 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 uh, uh, tailings ponds and disrupted areas doing to northern Alberta? I you know that's a huge impact on the environment. Uh, just so we can continue to burn oil ten to fifteen times faster than most of the developing world. You know? And Alberta and Northern Canada are bearing these environmental costs of that. Because we told them and I sat beside David Schoenberg in two thousand and three in two hearings, and we told them your environmental impact assessment is not addressing environmental issues. And they'll admit that too. They're not they're not actually they're not sure. If they're really going to ever be able to fix it. So, you know, it's a concern. And my concern is, you know, my generation, I got about 10 to 12 years left, right? And, you know, same thing with Tony. You guys are going to be around for 30 or 35 years. And the cost of maybe reclaiming the oil sands to clean up a lot of that, who's going to pay for that? If the oil's all gone, and the oil's already been shipped and been burned in the U.S., uh, you know, who's going to pay for that reclamation. I don't know, thoughts you want to share or questions or comments? Anybody?
4: Yeah, I know you, you told me you have to go
8: so yeah, yeah. Anybody else want to? Uh...
4: Uh,
8: no function? Well, yeah, what what goes into the tailing ponds is is <laughs> Okay. you know that camera time. Okay. What goes into the tailings pond is, is uh, you know, contaminated with oil byproducts and a lot of other, uh, you know, chemistry that's liberated. Uh, the most notable of it is called naphthenic acids, which are toxic and long living and carcinogenic. Uh, and there's there's tons of those produced in the whole operation. Um, right now, what they're doing is put in the tailings pond and bury it. That's the plan. Uh, and and hopefully. It will stay in the killing spawn. But, you know, when you're contaminating an area of 10 or 15,000 square kilometers, you know, um, I would say it's going to be the largest mine area in the world. It's going to be the largest toxic dump in the world. Uh, Just so the Americans don't have to become more efficient. Just so Canadians don't have to become more efficient. You know, it's not worth it in my view for us right now. But, you know, or use those resources so that your children get some more value out of them as well. Uh, you
10: know, so yes. I have a question, are there any policies that uh, support that encourage people uh to use different kind of uh resource like um uh, like uh instead of owning the consumption of oil gas?
8: Yeah. I, I wish there was. In in fact the pol the policies right now in North America are to consume you know, as, as much as possible almost. Um, automobiles are at their worst ever efficiency rating, according to the physician Foundation. And that's after 20 years of the automobile industry promising to improve efficiency under voluntary, you know, guidelines. And they haven't done it. So,
6: yeah, no? Isn't
10: that like a, a cult or something like, the oil center is the best way to get money, and then so the corporations that, the, like all all co- corporations that do whatever they can, that to relate their business to oil sands, right? And then, like if there's no oil, like you said, and then will discount, appear like re- repeat again, like they will bring their business to relate to other energy. Yeah, I
8: think important. that that that's been the history. And, and I, I, you know, there was one more clip actually that I hope to go through with you guys tonight, but we don't have time. It's about gold mining in the north. And it, it, it tells the story of two gold mines in northern Canada that were opened by Royal Oak Mines. And Royal Oak Mines declared bankruptcy and abandoned both of those mines. And now they're mining diamonds. And I understand they have a mine in British Columbia as well. But they abandoned both of those mines and left, and the environmental cleanup is now being paid for by the federal government. So, you know, we don't have any kind of means of, of apparently catching up with, with, you know, large corporate environmental problems.
14: Sure.
8: No, we don't have a monitor. At all, uh, in the, in the oil sense. The monitoring is run by the oil companies and unfortunately they don't make it public what, what they're, what they're doing or finding.
5: The biggest company in the world is ExxonMobil. Uh, that ExxonMobil is a straight, uh, outgrowth of uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey, uh, Rockefeller's company. Uh, Rockefeller's company, uh, sponsored, uh, IG Farben, built Auschwitz. Uh, I mean the oil and gas industry is a, has a history of extreme ruthlessness and it concentrates so much capital in such an intense way that with that capital they're able to buy political influence. so what we see going on in Iraq and all those issues it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, one of the, one of the beauties of capitalism, one of the strongest, uh, fa- fa- factors of capitalism is that if you can do more with less, then that makes economic sense to do it. And yet the concentration of economic power in oil and gas, I think, prevents the, the process which should be unfolding of doing, doing, uh, more with less. Because there's just so much money in doing it this way, and so much money for such a, a, a very small, concentrated oligarchy elite. Um, so, do we change our economics? Do we need to invent a new economic system? Uh, our corporations? Do we need to have better corporations? Do we, have, we need to have a different different approach? I mean, we're dealing with a political economy here that is our life source. And yet, it's not sustainable. It's giving us life in the short term, and yet it's killing us in the long term. What, 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 are, what, what are the alternatives, and how do we have the political debate we need to
8: to change our our political economy? Maybe, maybe we're starting it with these kinds of discussions. You know, I mean, you oh, there? oh,
9: yeah. You have to know that they're doing something wrong when a oil company offers every employee twenty thousand dollars per year of service, did that. just the last year, they offered $20,000 to all their employees for every year of service, So as I mean, a bonus. just as a bonus, so I mean they have to be covering something, <laughs> it has to be payment for damage to their lives, damage to the yeah. environment.
1: Um, just in regards to something like that, like you're You have to look at our economy. Like, if a company can offer that, they can't afford to lose employees because we have a 3% unemployment rate. Like, Alberta this year alone created 30% of the total new jobs in Canada. So, yeah, there might be some underlying things to that. But honestly, like, when McDonald's and Red Deer pays 22 bucks an hour, you know, if you sign a one-year contract with them, you can't you can't afford to. Lose and to recruit and train employees—that's a huge cost for companies.
6: But, but, Twelve
9: dollars an hour. If you work on campus, as like just in someone's lab, you're making like nine dollars an hour, and you have a university education.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
8: but but <laughs> what what twenty-two dollars an hour in Red Beer or or you know doing for you? You can't afford $10. any meaningful. You can't drive a nice car and you can't, you know, you can't live in Red Deer actually at 22 bucks an hour, I bet, unless you live in an apartment. You can't afford a home in Red Deer. Red Deer is almost the same as Calgary and Edmonton. And 22 bucks an hour won't buy you a $400,000 home.
2: But for, like, a student
1: or, like, this uh, average person that this is kind of, you know, like, this is, what they're trying to do is they're trying to draw younger and younger people. Like, they're actually, I've heard that they're actually uh, writing, like, legislation to have, like, younger and younger workers.
8: Like we see, like 13-year-olds working jobs now, right? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, sure. We're hearing about greater income, but I just don't. You know, to me, the 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 whole latest oil boom has accelerated the Alberta economy so much, and we've gone through such an inflationary spiral. Those incomes don't pay so you to be able to live in Alberta. Mm-hmm.
11: You know? no, I agree. Yes. I was just going to mention there was a question. Um, question. Last class about why people don't protest uh, in numbers these days, and I was going to mention whether or not um, being preoccupied with money, with making money and receiving more money these days would be in correlation to that. Yeah.
8: I, I mean, I I don't understand why students, you know, students in particular, because that's the one that me with me. I, my thoughts when I was going to school, students were fairly radical in the late 60s and early 70s. Now I of course, I went to school when I was five years old, so that's why I was around at that time, right? But in any case, um, you know, I, students had a lot more to say, and I'm not sure why they don't. I try to inspire everybody to get radical as can be, um, you know, and, and really start to speak out, because I think that's the only way I have to make a change. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but whether or not it's salaries. Until very recently, I used to tell all my classes, and it's becoming a slightly less relevant. Uh, But when I went to school, my tuition for a whole year for ten classes was 450 bucks. Okay? You guys are paying 500 bucks a course. Now, until very recently, if you went to get a part-time job, you know you only made eight, nine bucks an hour, ten bucks, eleven bucks if you were really lucky. Sure, that's gone up some, but stills the cost of living. Textbooks, my textbooks were seven to fifteen bucks. Yours are 100 to 200 bucks, right? You know what's happening? My generation is screwing you guys (laughs) royally. Okay, we got cheap education, and we have now got pretty good jobs, and we bought into the housing market when it was low, and now we're allowing everything to inflate, and our own children aren't going to be able to afford to live in our Alberta.
5: And let's say our textbook cost was about the same as uh, his textbook cost.
8: Uh, well, I try to use cheap textbooks as well, and, and, and I get them sometimes, fifteen, twenty dollar books for some of my classes. But yeah. And we're in the school of Google here too, you know. Yeah. Okay. I'll that to the I'm sure. To Google. Anyway, we, be, we better. Wrap, I guess we better wrap up. Anything? Anybody want to close with any quick comments?
5: Well, I want to thank you, Professor Byrne, for a very stimulating presentation based on a tremendous uh, project that uh, has great promise, and I'm sure is making a, a big difference. And it was just great to have the opportunity to be uh, one of the main minds behind this project. And uh, thank you so much for sharing this time with us, for taking uh, time away from what you might be doing otherwise, and uh, coming in and uh, seeing what uh, this is all about, and I hope uh, you'll feel comfortable to uh, join the Axis of Enlightenment and be a regular member of that uh, uh,
8: association. Thanks, Tony, and thank you guys for listening. Uh,
13: So I'll distribute the
5: uh, take-home exam next week and uh, you, you heard that at the front Frank and then and then uh, the